Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. The incomes are increasing at between 3 and 4% per annum. So in order to, to get the ratio of house prices to income back to what they were, you would need house prices to not change for a while. What's a while? The answer is 20 well, I years. Said, I mean, I kind of said that to my kids the other night, and they've all just bought a house, and, and they were horrified at the idea. Hello, lovely people of pods. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me down the line this week in the pod cave is Alan Kohler. Alan Kohler is the finance presenter on ABC News and he writes for the New Daily and Intelligent Investor. He's also a former editor of a couple of newspapers that I've previously worked for, the Australian Financial Review and The Age. Obviously, one of the most prominent finance commentators in the country. Now, I've invited him in to have a chat this weekend because he has written a new quarterly essay called The Great Divide, Australia's Housing Mess and How to Fix It. Now, obviously, we couldn't get a more topical uh, talking point, I guess, than this. It is the genuine water cooler issue in the country, housing affordability for you know, young people trying to crack the market, particularly in an environment with a sustained cost of living pressure and rising interest rates. So I'm looking forward to unpacking this quarterly, which will be in bookshops, I believe, from Monday. Make sure you go and grab it because it really is a fascinating read. Alan, thanks for coming on the pod. Not at all. I'm pleased to be here. This is a terrific essay, obviously. Don't need me to tell you that, but it, it is. We're going to walk through some of your arguments and some of the history that you put together that sort of leads us to this moment in housing, you know, in the housing market where we've got affordability problems, supply problems, all kinds of stuff, right? But I'm curious, having written a couple of these myself, I'm curious about your motivation for writing this quarterly essay. Where did the idea come from? I think, I suspect you answer it on the first couple of pages of the piece when you compare the circumstances that you faced purchasing a property and your parents faced with the circumstances before your kids. I don't know if that was the motivation or what what prompted this? Uh, well, what, what prompted it was the <laughs> editor of the quarterly essay rang me up and said, do you want to do a quarterly essay? Yeah, he does that. So that he was does the, that. That was the thing. And I, I, to be honest, I hadn't thought of it. Um, but I thought, right, oh, okay, I'll give that a try. That was uh, eight or nine months ago. And I've got a fairly full life, but I thought, yeah, I'll take that on and started to do the work. And I've 
really enjoyed the process. I mean, I don't know about you, but I found most of my life is spent writing a thousand words at a time. And I found that getting stuck into something in depth like this was really, really great. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised by that. It is it is a great format. It does sometimes you think you're going insane at the, the point at which you're not entirely certain you're going to pull it off, but it is the most wonderful format. And Chris, I know you'll be listening. Uh, thank you for inviting Alan and myself and others to, to write these essays. It's really great. Okay, so in this conversation, just for, for listeners, I'm going to sort of lay out a structure. Obviously, there's, it's sort of a tale in two halves for me as a reader. There's what happened prior to the year 2000 in terms of a, a sort of a history of decisions or poor decisions, and then there's what happened after the year 2000 that really supercharged the conditions that we're in at the moment. We'll get to what happened in the year 2000 and the years afterwards, but I want to start with a bit of the history because it is really fascinating, I think. You know, the different decisions governments took at different times. So if you had to pick sort of pre-2000, what, you know, two or three critical mistakes or missteps the country made in housing policy, what would they be? I suppose the uh, the main one would be the decision by Bob Menzies and his housing minister, Bill Spooner, to, to move away from public housing and into what they called little capitalists. So they, they didn't like public housing and people renting. They they thought renters voted Labor and that the way to enhance the vote for the Liberal Party was to ensure that people owned houses. So they forced the states to sell their public housing firstly to, to those who were renting them and second then to everyone on favourable terms. And so really that, that kind of spelt the end of public housing, which had been you know, a really important part of the post-war policies, in particular of the Labor Party of Ben Chifley and John Curtin. And, you know, I think that that's a really important part of what happened. Uh, there was another thing that was when the UK changed its zoning laws and essentially uh, nationalised zoning, brought it into London, Australia didn't follow, and that was in 1942. Mm. So... Mm-hmm. Australia's zoning laws uh, back in the early part of the century, just not long after Federation, basically followed the UK's uh, lead in the way that it was done. The zoning laws obviously were introduced in the UK in order to get control of the industrialisation that was taking place. Entrepreneurs were building factories and just building houses and, and so on to house their workers wherever they wherever they wanted to. And Early in the century, they kind of started get the government started getting control of that, and they introduced in the UK these zoning laws, which determined where factories could be built, where shops could be built, and where housing had to go. And that was something that Australia followed at the time. And then, in 1942, the government in the UK nationalised it, essentially brought it into London, and Australia did not follow suit at the time. Mm. And the implications of that is the sort of the way our cities have unfolded in a sense. I think you say sort of there's CBDs and and then everything radiates out long distances from that. And that's made the sort of infill challenge much harder. Is that what you mean in terms of the zoning or is it it broader than that? No, no, it's it's simply that the zoning and the planning decisions have been left at the local level. Yes. In Australia. And and that's always been the case and still is. 
the planning decisions are made by local councils and they're delegates of the states, really, because the states basically run the show, but they delegate it to councils because, it, well, it, it absolves them of responsibility, essentially. I mean, and also they think that's believed that that's better, it better reflects the views of the local local residents. Mm. And that's kind of true. And that's the, in a sense, that's part of the problem. I mean, one of the problems we have in Australia is that the great development of our cities began after the war when cars were affordable. Most of the European cities and a lot of American cities were developed before cars were affordable so that they had to be much more condensed because you had yeah. to be able to walk to or, or ride a horse or or ride a bicycle. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> or, or your penny farthing or whatever. That's yes. right. So yeah. so the house, so cities in, in other places are much more condensed because, you know, when, when our cities were developed, everyone was buying a car. My parents were able to buy 13 miles from the city in 1951 because they had a cheap Vanguard car. And so that, that's resulted in the great sprawl of Australia. Mm. And also, I think it's fair to say that Menzies had this idea that ownership of a plot of land and a decent-sized one was the right of every citizen, and, and that's fair enough. And, you know, he kind of pushed that. And it became an almost religious obsession in a way that really in Australia you don't rent, you own. Mm. And, that, you know, in other places around the world there's much more renting going on and people sort of regard renting as okay and in particular yeah. renting apartments. But in Australia the idea is that, you know, you don't, you don't rent. Yeah, you, you get your quarter acre block or equivalent and, and you build your little palace of dreams. Okay, so we've got Menzies and Little Capitalists and then that gives us a through line to John Howard in 2000. John Howard didn't speak about Little Capitalists, but he did speak about wanting to transform Australia into a great shareholding democracy, for example. So according to your essay, the argument in your essay, once we hit 2000, several things happened. The, the Howard government cut capital gains tax by 50%. First home buyer grants were resumed. Interest rates became more favourable, and also migration really took off in Australia. The great irony of stopping the boats and closing the borders. Actually, we had this explosion of migration during that the Howard years, and that created something of a perfect storm. You say delightfully, I think that um, halving capital gains tax was like a, a kerosene being poured on the smouldering coals of negative gearing, and that and other conditions turned property investing from a niche activity into the leaping flame of everybody's tax avoidance scheme. It's, <laughs> it's, quite, a, it's quite an image. So tell us about that post-2000 scenario and how that relates to where we are today. Around that time in the, in the late 90s, politics in Australia were, was all about tax. We, you know, we were arguing about GST ever since John Hewson's fight back in 1993 and he lost the election and then John Howard said, you know, that we'll never ever do that. And then there was a long debate about it. And then after he won the 96 election, Howard asked the Treasury Task Force, headed by Ken Henry, to provide the cover for a GST, which he duly did. You know, and then when he announced the 1998 election, Howard said, well, yes, we're going to have a GST. But at the same time, separate to that, Peter Costello appointed a group of businessmen headed by John Ralph, who was chairman of the Commonwealth Bank, and Rick Allett and Bob Joss to look at the the business tax, company taxation, because uh, Howard and Costello wanted to reduce the company tax rate from 36 to 30%. And they wanted some sort of official and expert cover for that. 
because that was what they wanted to do. And and uh, essentially, John Ralph and Stan Wallace, the head of the business council at the time, had persuaded Howard that that was a good idea. And so he appointed this business group, and those guys duly recommended the reduction in the company tax rate from 36% to 30%. But at the same mm-hmm. time, they unbidden recommended the halving of the capital gains tax. Yeah. Now, I mean, yep. the capital gains tax was introduced in 1985 by Paul Keating and John Howard, sorry, Bob Hawke. Um, Bob Hawke. And it was, the idea was that capital gains would, would be taxed at income tax rate minus inflation. So what Ralph Allett and Joss recommended was that we replace the adjustment for inflation with a simply a much easier and easier to administer halving of the rate by simply saying that only half of the capital gain would be taxed at the income tax rate. So that was their recommendation. Yeah. Yep. And in some ways it made sense. And I remember at the time I was reporting on it at the Financial Review and, and thought, yeah, well, that's fair enough because, you know, it basically equals the same. But the trouble is that inflation was much higher then. And so inflation has declined and yep. it, it's no longer equivalent. The inflation on average would no longer be equivalent to a 50% rate. And those guys, uh, Ralph Allett and Joss, explicitly said that the idea was to encourage people to invest in shares to become a nation of investors. And obviously- mm, That's the funny thing about it is, is that it was sort of in their mind, it was it was sort of about um, you know expanding capital in, in terms of share ownership, but the biggest impact it had was on the housing market. That's right. Well, Australia is not a nation of share investors. You know, we, we just yeah. weren't then and you know, we are now through superannuation, but we don't do it ourselves. The way Australians generate wealth is through housing. And so that's what yeah. we did. And and you can, you know, yeah. you can see it. And, and the thing is that we've always had negative gearing, the ability to deduct losses on an investment against other income. But the addition of the halving of capital gains tax just supercharged the benefit of negative gearing. Mm. So it's really the two things. I mean, you can see it in the data number of negatively geared houses took off after September 1999 when the capital gains tax was halved. So I think the other thing that was important in that, it was a bit of a sleeper, was the the abolition of inheritance taxes Yes, in the late 70s by Malcolm Fraser and Joe Bjorki-Pedersen. We'd had an inheritance tax since 1914 when it was introduced to pay for the war. And So it's like you couldn't you couldn't have created more favourable conditions for the creation of an investor class in property right. in yeah. Australia. It is kind of astonishing, actually, looking back at it, why people's thinking didn't match the obvious chain of events that would happen after these policy changes. It's sort of quite funny, actually, in retrospect. I went back and had a, a look at the Ralph Review and, and the language around it. It's kind of like, God almighty, it's kind of amazing, really. So obviously creating this investor class then is one of the factors that is making housing unaffordable for people. That's one of the issues. And people work around the affordability question in different ways. You know, as you say in the in the essay, sometimes through the bank of mum and dad and, and other things that you can draw on in order to get yourself into the property market. But obviously, not everybody has the bank of mum and dad. In fact, some, you know, there are some mums and dads who are still struggling to kind of pay off 
properties themselves. So it's sort of, it's problematic at a number of levels. You point to lack of affordability in housing being directly connected to sort of creating a class of of working poor, which we see in a democracy like the United States. And we see the problems associated with that inequality in that society. And you also point to the impact the negative impact on social cohesion. Why don't you take the listeners through that a little bit so that those those points are a bit more crystallised? It sort of goes to the point, why worry about this, right? We've got very expensive housing that a lot of people can no longer afford. Why do we worry about it? Oh, well, uh, look, I think you kind of, in the sense, in the question, you answered it because it entrenches inequality. It sort of means that we're no longer really a nation of where achievement and and hard work results in wealth. Wealth is largely determined by where you live and in particular where your parents lived and what sort of house you inherit and what sort of money your parents have got, as you say, that really the only way for, for millennials to buy a house now and those younger than, than that to buy a house is to get help from their mum and dad. Otherwise, you can't do it. It's as simple as that. You cannot, I mean, and I showed in, in a lot of the calculations at the front of the book how impossible it is to buy a house for a lot of people unless they've got help from mum and dad. But as you point out, not all mum and dads have got money. If you rely on housing to provide wealth, it entrenches inequality. And that's really, I think, the fundamental problem. And I mean, I see it all around me. Uh, My children, their friends are all either unable to buy a house or if they do buy a place, they're stretched and they haven't got any money for anything else. And they're working much more than they would like They've got kids, they have to put them in childcare, childcare is expensive, they're having to work much harder than they would like, and life is just hard. And just to take a step back, I mean, the, the fundamental thing that we kind of talk about is the, the change in the multiple of house prices to income, which occurred after yes. after 2000. Because up to 2000, for decades, possibly forever, the multiple of the average house price was three to four times average incomes. And then- it's become and is now uh, seven to eight times the incomes. And mm. that doubling of house prices in relation to income and in relation to GDP of the country has changed everything. Mm. Let's get to some solutions now, because obviously the bulk of the essay is laying out clearly the story to date. Why have we reached this pretty pass, as it were? You do spend uh, the final sort of chapter of the essay thinking about solutions. Again, you don't need me to say thank you, Alan, but I will say, as a, as a political reporter, I will say thank you, Alan, in this respect. You do not present that there is some simple solution to this issue sitting on a shelf that the political class is either too venal or too stupid to kind of access. You point to this as a genuinely wicked problem to the extent that governments, in order to correct some of these trends in essence, have to take on the majority in the country because the majority of us are still asset holders through through our homes. And obviously, no one likes the idea of the value of their property going down. So this is very difficult. Nonetheless, you say it must happen. So why don't you share with the listeners what must happen? Uh, well, it gets back to what I was saying just now, was that the house price to income ratio has doubled from three to four times to seven to eight times. One of the things I say about succession of housing policies that have occurred over decades, people have been talking about housing affordability and having inquiries and so on and, and coming up with solutions is that really in none of this, there's never been a name. No one's actually described the destination 
of a housing policy, yep. what are we trying to achieve? <laughs> and so I would suggest that the, the only destination that makes any sense is to reduce the house price to income ratio back to what it was because it's the doubling of the house price to income ratio that caused the problem. So we need to yeah. get it back down. Okay, well, so uh, what does that mean? That's a lot, right? I mean, you'd have to, in order to do that, you know, you'd have to halve house prices. Yeah. And, you know, and when, <laughs> when American house prices fell 30% in 2006-07, it caused a global recession and, and financial crisis. Banks everywhere went broke. It was a disaster. Yeah. So the last thing we want is for house prices to halve. Right, and even mm. if that could be done, which it couldn't be done anyway, but even if, even if you could imagine it being done, it's not what you would want to do. And people talking about house prices coming down sufficiently to redress the problem of housing affordability, they're kind of they're not being sensible. That's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. House, but incomes are increasing at between three and four percent per annum. So, in order to to get the ratio of house prices to income back to what they were, you would need house prices to not change for a while. Yeah. What's a while? The answer is 20 years, 18 to 20 oh. years, right? So if the government said, okay, everybody, what we need to do is get house price income ratio back to three to four times, then they would then have to say, and we are going to do whatever it takes to ensure that house prices don't change for 20 years, uh -huh. right? <laughs> Vive la revolution. So, <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, tricky, well, I said, very I mean, I tricky. I said that to my kids the other night and they've all just bought a house and, and they were horrified at the idea. Yes, you know, exactly. Like, this, is the, this is the problem, isn't it? I mean, this is the I problem. Mean, what, what do you mean house prices can't change for 20 years? You, you've got to be joking. We, we absolutely need house. We need the value of our house to rise because that's mm. the only way we're going to build any wealth, you know, and so... <clears throat> I mean, I, I think it's it's possible that there is no solution that we're stuck with house price to income ratio of seven or eight percent, uh, seven or eight times. I think that's that's possibly the case. Could be. I mean, obviously, even if house prices stopped increasing at six to seven percent per annum compound, as they've done for the last uh, twenty three years, and returned to the three to four percent per annum compound growth that prevailed before that, even if that happened, yep. well, we'd be stuck with the current house price to income ratio. Yes. Because, you know, house prices would go back to rising with incomes, right? And the, the yeah, ratio that exactly. currently prevails would continue. I, I do think that we as a nation should be trying to get the house price to income ratio back down again. It's too high. It's causing distortions in the economy. It's causing problems in society. It's causing, it's entrenching inequality. So that'd be a good idea. In order to achieve that, the government, assuming that it wanted to achieve it, would have to work towards getting a national consensus that it was a good idea. And yeah. that would take time, yeah. right, because no, because nobody's actually tried to achieve it. Everyone's just talked about housing affordability and what a problem it is and paid lip service to it and worked away at the edges of it, but nobody's actually said, okay, well, this is what we need to do. And so the, the government, in my view, would need to spend a couple of years just talking about mm. it, just doing nothing, Making, but yeah. talking about the yeah. problem and what's needed and trying to achieve a national consensus. Now, you know, how would you measure that? Would you? How would you know you've got it? I think you'd know. The only way to kind of win these arguments is is to, dare we say, lead politically. And I'll come back to that because I think this, I'd really like your view on that. But 
you're right, like obviously th- there would have to be some sort of, call it for want of a better term, national interest campaign around these issues. Obviously, we did see Labor propose changing the tax breaks for housing at two elections and obviously the Labor Party lost both elections. So that's problematic in in the sense of Labor's not showing any appetite to return to that fray. I I do think it's interesting though that some of the sort of next generation liberals I think are thinking around these issues more you know, riskily in a political sense than I've observed actually in in recent memory. So that's a kind of watch this space maybe. But basically though... um, I think Bill Shorten's, uh, I think Bill Shorten's big mistake because he almost won in 2016. He had had the policy of negative, confining negative gearing to new houses and halving the capital gains tax discount from 50 to 25%. And and he almost won in 2016. And I think he got cocky. And then in 2019, he added to those policies a change to dividend franking. And that problem with that is that he then lost in 2019 pretty badly. But the trouble is yep. he don't know, doesn't know and the Labor Party, nobody knows why he lost. Was it because of dividend yes. franking or was it because of negative gearing? And I think, yep. I think you could argue that uh, given what happened in 2016, it wasn't because of negative gearing. But the tr- trouble mm. is they don't, because they don't know why they lost. No, exactly. You can't disaggregate. You can't stu- study factors they in isolation. They just drop everything. Yeah. You know? and, and so now yeah. everyone assumes negative gearing is absolutely toxic. But, but Yeah, it, and it may well, not it, be. But, mm. Well, in fact, I think it's the first thing you have to do. The, yeah. the absolute first yeah. thing that the government needs to do is to do what John Howard did in 1997, which was to say, okay, we do need a GST, you know, Treasury's told me, okay, I accept it, we're going to go to the next election with the GST. He got a big report done on it. He then spent 12 months persuading us, telling us what we need, and then he just fell, fell across the line in 98, right? I mean, mm, what, only, just. only just. He just mm. won and then was able to bring in the GST. Well, you know, that's what Albanese, if, if he and Jim Chalmers want to do something about this, that's exactly what they have to do. Where you need to start. And I wonder too, I mean, we'll get again, let's think about leadership because I want us to touch down there for a few minutes. But I wonder whether you think, and I don't think you raise it explicitly in the essay, forgive me if you do, but from memory, I'm not sure you do. Just this balance, obviously, because now... Housing is is so much more unaffordable. Uh, there's a big shortage of rental accommodation as well, but there is a rise in the sort of in in people who will be renting over over the long term, right? Because they can't afford to buy. There is some discussion, obviously, in strategist circles in politics whether the rise of renters actually makes the sort of policy reform environment more favourable for governments because it's not just that simple trade off that you that you put in the essay, which is that the majority of us still own houses, therefore you're talking about decreasing the value of the of the prime asset, right? Do you see the sort of a rise in, in a renter class being catalytic at all? Yes, I do. Um, I spent a bit of time, you know, a couple of pages of the of the essay talking about pets. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, most people brought up with pets want to have pets. It's very difficult to have a pet in a rental place and on the rental part of REA, there's a pets preferred button where you can click. You need to rent a place that allows pets, right? 
Yeah. Well, the yeah. the, 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 the percentage of houses in Australia that have pets allowed is about twelve percent. In Victoria, seven yeah. percent. You know, and it's, it's in nowhere yeah. in the country is it above twenty five percent. So it's very difficult to have a pet if you're a renter, and you know, I, I think that's a really big problem. But I suppose what I'm talking about more broadly is that the, the conditions for renters, the the you know, the, the the power balance between renters and landlords is skewed in Australia towards landlords. And there have been some attempts in both Queensland and Victoria to redress that balance with some new legislation. And I think it does to some extent, but nowhere near enough, I think. And so so it is disadvantageous to be a renter. You know, you don't have any power. You can get kicked out. You know, it's very difficult. And the amount you pay is, you know, not under your control of any sort. So I think one thing that needs to be done is for that to be done at a national level, not just mm. state by state. There needs to be a kind of a uniform look at the power balance between renters and landlords. And the other thing that needs to be done, which which Julie Collins, the Minister for Housing, is is doing something about, is encouraging build to rent. That is to say, institutional ownership of rental properties, because in Australia it's all about individual landlords, and and I think it's generally acknowledged that whereas other countries have institutional ownership of apartment blocks and they own them and rent them out, the fact that that doesn't happen in Australia is a disadvantage. It's a problem. It, it not only reduces the volume of rental properties, but it also Institutions, super funds would tend to be better landlords, I think. They're just more uniform. And like, obviously, there are some fantastic landlords but among individuals and mums and dads, but a lot of bad ones as well. Yeah. Let's finish, just do a couple of minutes on, on leadership, which you, you've made that case, uh, both in the essay and in this conversation, pointing to, you know, how it investing that great big chunk of time in persuading Australians that something that they wouldn't want, want in all of the circumstances to do was actually in the national interest and the only way to shift the the dial on this is to do something similar. I'm sort of curious about uh, what, what you think about the environment for reform at the moment because obviously I was working at the Fin Review in uh, the late 90s and early 2000s and reported on that period that we've discussed. But it was a much more orderly environment in terms of how debates were conducted. I'm not saying it was ever easy, but it was more orderly than now. Now, because there's a very disrupted media cycle and there's it, it's, it's much more difficult, I think, for governments to kind of grasp the, the levers of a kind of national communications strategy. But, you know, this is just what I observe from my vantage point, Alan. You obviously occupy a different one. What do you think about that? I totally agree. I, I mean, it is very different now. Politics uh, has become Trumpified or perhaps Murdochified, if you like. I mean, I think mm. politics, mm. Uh, the way the, the political debate is conducted is much more combative, much more polarised uh, than it was in the 90s, it's true. Uh, mind you, I mean, it was pretty it was pretty rough going in the 90s uh, when John Houston was trying to get elected in 93 and so on. I, I, you know, it was pretty rough. But there is never more political capital than is owned by a first-term government. Mm. I mean, that's the time. That's what Howard did. That's, I mean, Howard used his first-term political capital to introduce the GST. And Albanese and Jim Chalmers have that political capital now. They won well. 
last year, and I think it's really a big responsibility on them to go to their first election as as a government with reform mm. of some sort. It almost doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's good reform. You know, there's tons of reform <laughs> needed. I think it's a it's a responsibility that they have now to take a unpopular policy to their first election. I think they I think they've got to do it. There's no time, no better place and time to do it than your first term. And so that's what I think they've got to do. And I think they should go to the next election with the policy that Bill Shorten took to the 2016 election. Hmm. Interesting thought and a good note to end on. Uh, If the Prime Minister and the Treasurer are listening, take note. Uh, Thank you, Alan, so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. You guys, I think the essay's out Monday, right? It's it's in bookshops from Monday. Yep. So uh, head down to your bookshops on Monday and pick it up. It's really worth your time. Thanks a lot, Catherine. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.